Sarah is, you know what? She's got this long bio that you guys could all read. Um, I would just say that I have personally worked with Sarah and she is a rock star. Like we've had her in a situation where we had a bunch of dance teams uh, or dance, um, dance groups who came into a location and she had basically her and a first assistant and that's all they had. And they made magic on this video. Uh, she's won tons of awards for the work that she's done without further ado, Sarah Phillips. Hello. Howdy. I want to say Sarah Phillips camera. Like that's your name. <laughs> that's my Instagram, so that's fine. <laughs> uh, I love everybody. Thanks for being here, guys. With Kate Fogarty, uh, writer director from LA, is here. Um, remember to ask your questions in the box as we go. And Kayla has put up a StreamYard link for you. So again, if you want to join us, uh, open up Chrome or Firefox, click that link, and you'll be backstage. Uh, Sarah, so. You know, there's a lot of camera questions we could get into. One of my big ones I'm wondering, though, is like, I think a lot of people ask is, is there something for you when you're starting a project that makes you choose a camera? Or do you just have a favorite camera that you go to? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of factors that make me choose. I own three cameras for a reason. Um, depends on sort of what the goals of the project are, right? And also like what kind of time we're constrained by or budget. So um, like I, I just shot some stuff for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation for the Canadian Women's Beach Volleyball Olympic Champions that are going to Tokyo in a couple of weeks. Uh, but they wanted to be like super light on their feet. We were doing a lot of stuff on the beach. And so we shot uh, all of that on the A7S three because it's super, it's super easy to have not a huge footprint crew wise with that camera. Um, anything narrative, I generally start on an Alexa mini and work backwards, um, but I own the Alexa mini. So that's why I've owned like a very wide swath of cameras and uh, they all have kind of different, different goals. I mean, obviously like if you're trying to do a lot of VFX, you would shoot, they shoot a ton of stuff on the red for that because it's a, sharper sensor. I could talk for hours about <laughs> why we should choose different cameras. Like um, like Black Panther, a lot of their VFX was shot on the red camera because they, you have to, so when you're doing VFX, you have to like be able to track contrast points, right? So the only way to do that efficiently is to have a very sharp sensor versus the Alexa. Um, and I would even say like the, the Ursa and things like that have a softer sensor um, soft is it's more, it's more indicative of like film emulsion, which was the goal for it. Um, which tends to be softer just because it's sort of like a different shape. I think even at the, the basics of it, like I own two cameras, I own the Ursa mini G2 and I own the black magic pocket 6k. And I will tell you, I get out my 6k for everything I shoot because it's just so much yeah. easier. It is easier. And it, and it like, yeah, like the 6k, you can just roll out with like a little tripod and you can just get it done. And then the Ursa, you you do need more support. I try to explain that to people. You need uh, a bit more support team when it comes to a bigger camera. Um, even if you're like pulling your own focus, cause like with the 6K you can kind of do that. But with the Ursa, it's like. <laughs> yeah, more of a beast. Yeah. Um, so our first question has come in from Marion. She says, I'm looking for suggestions on which gimbal would work best on the OG Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera. Oh, yo, I had that. I owned that camera. 
Um, good question, because that camera needs a lot of stabilization. Uh, so that's a little, that's a tiny little thing. It, it'll have to do more with which lens that you put on it because it's more of a weight issue. I will say I have recently shot, I owned the Ronin S1, the little, the little guy. I mean, I've shot on so many gimbals, but I, the Ronin 2, you can pretty much fly anything, the big guy. And then uh, the Ronin S1 I owned and, and it was up pretty good, but they just came out with the Ronin S2 and I can fly the A7S3 with like a 24 to 70 and like zoom in and out, which changes your balance center. And it kind it pretty much handles it if you balance it to the center of the zoom. So the black magic for sure. I mean, unless you're like, I can't imagine you'd be flying like a hawk anamorphic on that little tiny camera. But you know, if it's somewhere in that reasonable range of like um I don't know, like that size of a lens, then yeah, you'd you'd be good with the the new Ronin S2, and plus that'll last you a little longer than. Although you could probably find the Ronin S1 if you're if you're flying like a pancake lens, like a little forty, um, you could you could get away with the Ronin S1 and probably find it for way cheaper too. Yeah, um, John Parento, can you throw up the link to the one that she's recommending, which I think is the one that John actually recommended me to buy for the pocket cam with a couple accessories to make it fit. Um, also, just so you know, um, Marlon, we are, and I apologize if I said your name wrong earlier. I'm, I, eyes are literally blurry today. So everything is backwards or um, whatever. Anyway, even my brain can't think. Uh, Marlon, uh, we are doing a gimbal class in July. Kayla, if you could throw that date up. Um, so if you really want to learn more, we're going to really get into gimbals and like have a show and tell of setting them up and all that good stuff. So, and then if you buy one, then you can maybe come and be part of our class if you're in LA. Anyway, moving on. Um, so those, there's a DGI link there for you, Marlon, so that you can um, see which one she was just talking about mostly. Or, uh, okay, anybody else who's here who has questions, by all means, please put them in the box. Or uh, Kayla, if you could put that link up again for them to be able to join us live, uh, that'd be great. So let's just kind of dive into, I guess, the next kind of basic when it comes to camera questions is lenses. Um, I, as a non-cinematographer who just shoots, you know, things I have to to survive sometimes, uh, I do, I almost live on my 85 or 50 and a 35. Like, I, and I love Prime. I'm not a fan of Zooms. Do you have something that you kind of live on unless, you know, obviously when you're making a movie, it dictates a lot different, but you have favorites? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I, you'll find cinematographers have favorite lengths of things, um, regardless of the type of lens so like i really like a 50 for like a lot of stuff um there's some there was kind of this phase not phase but there was kind of this like era where people uh shot super wide for a long time um where they would be on like a 18 and be like up against your face and see more of the world behind and then and less compression of background and um it's super charactery and like quirky, but it's never, I, I like pretty things. <laughs> so I've always liked, you know, 50, I mean, an 85 uh, is a little bit like indulgent, I will say, cause it's just gorgeous. And um, it's kind of like cheating. Although sometimes you should just cheat and make things beautiful. Like on, in like date scenes, right? When like someone is supposed to fall in love, you know, an 85, 
you fall in love. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's crazy. So I, I know we'll dive more in and people can have more in-depth questions I could ask. I'm just going to kind of keep going through the basics. Uh, yeah. but Mel just asked, Mel says, good morning. I'm a director who loves camera and would love to know how to begin to consider the different looks and feels for what each camera would bring to each project. Can you recommend a resource for researching what camera works best and how to understand to choose lenses and augment this? I mean, beyond obviously renting stuff and just getting out there, which I think is the best way is just putting them on and seeing what you like. Is there resources that you can recommend? Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a ton. The first thing I would say is that, um, so ShareGrid and Old Fast Glass paired up to do the ultimate lens test uh, a while ago. And uh, that's that's available. You can look at a bunch of different lens tests online. You just, I think you just Google, I just usually look up ultimate lens test, but they did, uh, they've been working on it over like three or four years to catalog and they still don't even have like every lens that exists or every lens that I like, you know what I mean? Um, but they, they basically, the best way to test a lens, I'm gonna close this window because of the garbage. Um, <laughs> the garbage truck is here. Uh, they, they, the best way to test a lens is put a person, you know, kind of eight, eight feet or so. You can look this up. Actually, Jay Holden writes about this in American Cinematographer, the magazine, if you really want to learn super nerdy shit about cameras. But uh, basically, you put a person eight feet from the camera, put a bare bulb next to them and then put some Christmas lights behind. Uh, that's like the dumbed down version of it. But um, then if you change lenses, you can see how the elements and the optical effects sort of change with that, right? So in any kind of scientific, we'll call it a scientific test. Um, both my parents are scientists. You wanna only change one element, right? So if you're testing lenses, you would have them all in the same camera with the same setup and the same person and lighting and all that stuff. Um, if you want to test cameras, you would flip that and you would have the same pretty like you would want like a very basic lens right um or not basic but you could say like true to uh true to like optics right and the best probably the best one for that would be the um airy masters probably uh that that if you could rent like one airy master prime like a 35 is considered to be just like a, what your vision shows, uh, then you could pop that on some different cameras. And truly, you can go to pretty much any rental house and say, hey, you know, we want to test some cameras. And uh, I mean, most of them will have an Aries Ice Master sitting around, you know, or or a Zeiss Super Speed you could probably do if it's not the vintage ones. So um, that's a great way to like test to see how the different cameras have effects on things, right? Because you would then have to take that footage home and make it big on your computer because you won't be able to tell on like a little five or seven inch, right? So on a red, you would see like significantly sharper, like here, see where that like contrast point is behind me? You would see like a sharper contrast point there on a red. On um, on an airy, you're gonna find that the greens are a very specific kind of green that kind of every other camera tries to achieve. So you, you kind of see these different effects and then you choose subjectively what you like. Same with lenses, like none of this is uh, an objective thing. I mean, it's all, you look at it and you go, oh, I kinda like that. Hmm, that's kinda cool. You know, that's that's sort of how you would, 
you would test all of that stuff. And then over time you collect a, uh, you know, a base knowledge of those things and you can speak intelligently about why a certain scene might require uh, one thing or another. And I would say too, Mel, as a director, I was told very often in my early directing career, oh, that's not possible. And then I learned lenses, even just learning lenses and nothing else. And I was like, oh, it's possible. <laughs> so I think it's important that we directors, we don't have to know it all because I do love that like I can work with someone like Sarah and just say, I want this look and she can give it. But it is also nice to be like, can we try it on a 50 and not have to go, can we try it a little more, you know, here in this frame? <laughs> um, so here's There's some other also a great app. Sorry, Jen. There's a great oh, app um, called Artemis Pro. Um, and just as far as like choosing lengths and stuff, you just, you plug in your, uh, I mean, every DP has this, how we take pictures on scouts and stuff. So you just plug in up. That's kind of what it looks like. Oh, look, it's my face. <laughs> um, you just plug in what, what lens was that? <laughs> that's a Cook S5i. I think that's the last thing I shot on. The uh, you plug in your camera and what codec and settings and which lenses and things like that, and then you can just swipe between uh, and see, right? So it's like I even use it on set where I'm going to be like, you know, if we're still finding a lot of indie stuff, you're still finding stuff on the day, and so it'll be like, okay, let's. I can tell my first AC to swing to a 40 while we're switching lights. You know what I mean? It's, it's very efficient. Uh, so I want to go through some camera basics. So for um, those of you who are scared to ask questions, there's no question that's too small or too technical because Sarah probably answer anything. Uh, so reminder, if you want to um, join us live and just, there's a link in here, the StreamYard link, you click that in Facebook and Firefox or Chrome and you'll be backstage and we'll talk to you live. Um, and then also they just put in the link for you for the app for Artemis app. So you can easily find that. Um, so I want to go through kind of basics of cameras, meaning like, what are the things if I, if I don't really know cameras and I'm just picking it up, um, I need to know certain things, you know, right? Like ISO white balance. What are um, some of the other things you say, these are the basics you need to know about your camera. And then let's go through what those mean. Uh, yeah. So it's all, if we roll it all back, it's all about exposure, right? So you're trying to optimize your exposure for, to achieve your goals. I, most of the time that's to have the least amount of noise and have appropriate exposure so that you have a, a wide range to play with in post. That's generally what it is. It's not always what you're, sometimes like I'll push my ISO really high for street photography, right? Cause you want that like grainy seventies fast feel, right? So if you can imagine exposure as uh, like, I don't know, the best way to explain it is like, a, a, do you guys play those stupid games on your phones where it's like, you have to like make things fit into things. That's kind of what exposure is, where it's like, you can't take one piece without giving another piece, if that makes sense. And you're, and you're trying to fit it into this space. Um, so you're prioritizing different things. Sometimes you're like, oh no, I definitely need one piece, right? So, so to break down what those elements are, and the thing is on every camera, not on every, there's some cameras that you can't customize like white balance and that's, that's insane. And everyone, because <laughs> I've been on set before and they hand me a certain camera that I'm not gonna, well, 
I'm not going to say it. But, and I'm like, you can't, you have to like hold a piece of paper. It's like archaic. So anyway, um, <laughs> regardless. So we'll go through. So white balance obviously is your color temperature. So like um, the stuff coming in from my window back here is bluer. Uh, so in, in your camera, that is going to be something closer to the 3000, 3200 range. I mean, it's probably like 442 right now. And then over here is uh, an indoor tungsten, tungsten light, just a little filament. I think it's a filament. Oh yeah, it's like an old school filament bulb. So it's, uh, it's like super warm, right? So if I were to just set my camera to make it feel that color or warmer, I'm gonna make that like something like 7,000 or something. And you can play with effects. You can, there's a lot of uh, DPs on Instagram that will show you very nerdy things about how you can do it. But like in a diner, if you set your color temperature super cool, then the whole thing feels like kind of green and icky. And then you like have to put an orange light to fight that blue, right? And then it just feels normal. So these are just like fun little color temperature things. And you can go the other way or, you know, a lot of old school DPs will just set color temperature for what the actual color temperature of white is in the space. And that's the like safer way to do it in post, right? Because then in post, you're like, oh, whatever. I tend to take more risks and back myself into like very exciting visual looks. But, you know, find the thing that fits you, I guess. So then ISO um, is how fast your film is, right? So some of these things are based on on actual film emulsion and all of that. I mean, it, they all are based on that, but they're still named for that, right? Um, <clears throat> so ISO is how fast your, your your film speed. And if you can imagine like taking a picture on a, on a still camera, imagine this was made of film or any of these cameras up here are film cameras. <laughs> so imagine you're like taking a picture. It's how fast that emulsion accepts the light, right? So in an old school camera, I mean, your whole roll is like 800 or something, right? But you can you can change that in digital cameras to be whatever you want for each shot. Um, but basically like the faster your, your ISO, AKA the higher the number, um, the faster you can capture an image which is helpful at night when you don't have a lot of light or for sports, stuff like that, when things are moving quickly because how fast your ISO directly affects your shutter speed, right? Um, now in film, in stills, shutter speed doesn't really matter, right? You can, cause you're taking one picture, but in film, um, your shutter speed is 23.98 or 30 if you're in, other, if you're shooting for digital or 25 and you're, if you're in Europe or the rest of the world besides the United States. Um, so, and, and the general rule then shutter speed, right? I'm sorry, this is getting a little dense, but this is, this is what it is. So shutter speed, right? Shutter angle is um, basically like the angle at which it's shooting, right? So you want it to be if it's a if it's a fraction, it's one over double whatever your shutter speed is. So if, if you're shooting at 24 or 23.976, then you, it would be 
one over 48, right? Sometimes you can't always get one over 48 in like little cameras and stuff. So then you just sort of wrap so up to one over 50. I'll back it up to the, to the filmmaker who's newer and pick up the camera. Um, so when they're setting, there's, if they're doing their basic settings, for instance, um, you know, obviously everything changes based on day, night, whatever, but is there like a basic speed that you run it at, um, an ISO you yes. try to get at? Yes. Yes. So, uh, good. Pull me in, Jim. <laughs> um, so yeah, so every camera, um, has an, what's called a native ISO. Some of them have dual native ISOs um now because technology is awesome but uh you can just google what's the native iso of my camera um most of the sony's are 640 aries 800 um which is a pretty fast speed i mean like you know roger deakins talks about how he had to shoot at night with 150 iso film and that's like very you have to like blow light in to get any exposure so um so you just can Google what your native ISO is. You, it, it would be great if you stay at the native ISO because that's where the least noise is as the manufacturer created so for it. For those who are newer, that would mean you're, if you say your native ISO is 800 and it's still dark, now you're adding outside light instead of doing what a lot of newer filmmakers do and keep cranking up the ISO until eventually it's grainy and pretty much unusable. I mean, truly, like if, if your native ISO is 800 and you go up to 1000, that's introducing a lot of grain already. Um, there are some cameras that do it better than others, but it's kind of there's kind of a little give and take there, too. Right. If your camera is amazing at night, it's probably not the best one during the day. Right. So there's there's kind of so that's why you pick the camera based on the project. If you know you're shooting all at night, you want to pick something that's better night exposure. Anyway, so yeah, native ISO. And then generally, if you're in the United States, you're going to set your shutter speed to 23,976. Um, some of them, it doesn't say that because they're a little prosumery. So it would, you just set it like the, the A7S3. It doesn't say 23,976 because I think they think it would freak people out, but it's, you set it to 24 and it is truly 23,976. Um, same with like DJI drones. I don't know why they didn't just put whatever, but I think it just overwhelms people. So, um, so that, and then your, and then your shutter angle is the same. It's the same thing, shutter angle and, and shutter speeds, shutter fraction. It's one over 48 or 180 degrees. It's easier to just set it to 180 degrees. Cause then if you change your shutter or change your frame rate to like 48, for example, it'll just automatically fix your angle for you. <laughs> It's a lot easier that way. Okay, so I keep losing my uh, earpiece here. Today is a weird day. Um, so I would love to dive into some of your actual work, um, and then you can maybe talk to them about the basics of what it took, took to achieve that look. Yeah, oh, so let me, um, sorry, you've also, for exposure, you've got, you've got lenses too. So that's yeah. a huge part of that. So we can talk about lenses later because it's going to be, but how wide open your lenses go, the wider open, the more light comes in. It's all about controlling how much light is coming into your camera at the end of the day. Um, yeah, well, people people yeah. always ask too, I think when a new filmmaker, when it comes to that is they everybody wants the bokeh. And with that blurry background, um, that's trying to open up the lens more. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. then gives so, more light, which then you got to figure out how to take off light off of your human face if they're a white 
yeah like, uh, bounce board themselves <laughs> unless it's at night and then it's great <laughs> um yeah i mean you also run into so the what if you're super so say you have like a super fast lens right like i'm gearing up to shoot something that's like almost all at night i think it's like overnights um so but we're gonna have to have super fast lenses because they don't have a budget to get a three-ton truck you know what i mean so um the problem with shooting wide open, um, which everybody loves to do because it's like everything falls off in the background, is that your focal, the the focal plane, um, there's an app for this too if you really want, but there's a focal plane where it's like if you're wide open, that gets super little, right? So it's really hard to keep anything in focus. So you have to have like the best first AC of all time if you are going to shoot wide open. If you shoot at something closer to like a 2.8 or a four, no matter what, how, how fast your lenses are now that then that gets you to have maybe like a foot and a half of focal plane, right? It's a lot easier to keep your people in focus. Not to mention like most top films don't shoot wide open. So if you want it to look like Hollywood films, like they shoot around a four generally because you get enough background. Like I've shot some commercials, where they want to shoot wide open and it looks like we're on a green screen because everything is so out of focus that it's like, what's the point, you know, of even getting something super cool. Um, Mel asked, I'm assuming that's what you, as to what you were just talking, that's how they shoot Handmaid's Tale, correct? Yeah. Some of their stuff when they're like super close to people, it can also have um, like an isolating effect, which is I think why they do it that way. Because Reed Murano set the look on that. And that's the vintage K35 lenses um, and Alexa Mini. Uh, they wanted them to feel super isolated. Um, and that's one way to achieve that. But again, that would be like, here's, here's a story goal we have. How can we achieve that optically? Instead of being like, let's just shoot it all, everything wide open because it's pretty, you know. So... It, it can, it can, uh, there's a couple of films that do a really good job with that as well, where they shoot and then they'll rack a bunch, you know, they'll rack focus from just this plane where it's just you and your own world and then rack to somebody else whenever they get broken out of that dream state, right? So, but yes, that's accurate about Handmaid's Tale, but they don't shoot everything wide open, just those like iconic, you know, close up stuff. Jack asks, how do you achieve an anamorphic look? Well, there's a lot of ways to do it nowadays. Um, you, the true answer is you shoot on anamorphic lenses. Um, ooh, let's talk about anamorphic lenses. So uh, anamorphic lenses, this is, y'all, you're going to get a history lesson here. So... Um, Back in the day, it was all spherical, right? We're shooting on film and it's like a four by three little square of film. Well, then in, in cinemas, they wanted to get a wider perspective, but film was still this big. So they were like, what are we going to do? So somebody invented, oh, I wish I knew who it was because this would be helpful right now. But someone invented lenses that are shaped like an oval so that they optically squish a super wide frame to 2.39 generally if it's a two by into a square and then on the other side when you're projecting it they have another oval projector lens 
that de-squeezes it, right? So it, back in, this is back in the day with film. So now, basically in the early 90s, at the dawn of this, the whole digital, well, no, it'd be late 90s, I guess. Whenever Aerie was starting to get into digital stuff and Canon, start, Canon did the 5D in like 99, I think. So back in that day, some DPs were digging around in Panavision's, you know, back closet and found a bunch of old anamorphics because they couldn't, you know, they it got to the point where film got wider, right? And then you've got like large format or you've got 65 or whatever. So they, it got it got to be a, a different situation because you could project like a large format lens onto a 65 and have the image frame, image circle cover all of that. So then they found these anamorphic lenses and they're like, oh, we're doing something with this. So digitally <clears throat> now they have, I mean, at the, at the time you had, it, you would come in with this squished footage and you had to figure out digitally how to squish it out. And for a while it didn't look super awesome because on obviously on film like that, it all fills in whenever you're on a projector versus digital. So, but then now, now they have algorithms for that. So that's now, now it's, you know, you just set in your area, you're like, oh, I'm on an anamorphic lens. And then it does it. Black Magic has it too on the Ursa. You just go, I'm on an anamorphic. And it's like, great, we'll just de-squeeze it so that you can watch it on this screen the way that you would see it. But back in the day, they had to watch it like squeezed and like have intelligent feelings about whether it was good or not, which is insane. So anyway, that's anamorphic. So now there's also, um, so, so if you're but if you're like a, a an indie filmmaker and you want to create an anamorphic look, so maybe you're making your own little yeah. sci-fi film. Mm -hmm. um, There's a few ways to do it. There's a few ways to do it. So um, let me also just say that an anamorphic lens is two two optical elements. So you have what's called the taking lens, which is like a K35 or something, and then you have the anamorphic element, and that's the squeezy part, right? So whenever anamorphics got cool again people would just take an anamorphic element and put it on the front of any spherical lens. Um, and that still now, those front guys still exist. I mean, people are making them brand new. It becomes very complicated though, because you have to focus both of those lenses, right? At the same time, which is why when you, which is why you really, if you're gonna shoot anamorphic, you want a rehoused one, because you can find you know, those those kind where you have to focus both at the same time, which is a nearly impossible feat, um, but it, it, it'll wreck your whole shoot. I mean, there, there's just not even a point. So um, now, additionally, the thing people love about anamorphic optically is the shape of the bokeh, which is an oval, and the flare that goes across with, a, with like a bear, with a bear bulb, right? Um, the flare became like sexier in the nineties. Uh, and the bokeh, I mean, you know, bokeh people are just, that's, I've just learned this actually, that's from an old, uh, Japanese phrase for, cause we didn't in, in English have the word bokeh. Anyway, that's American cinematographer language right there. Um, they, that I just read about that. So the the what they have now are so the bokeh is shaped by the shape of your iris your iris is what controls your f-stop which opens and closes the lens right on the inside so that shape is created by how many blades are in that iris so if you've got 
15 blades, you get a near perfect circle. If you've got, I don't know how many blades this has, but you can watch it as it closes, you know what I mean? As you're opening and closing a lens. So if you've got like three blades, I think the Zeiss Super Speeds have three blades, you get like a triangle. And I've got a still to show you guys that, but you get like a triangle bokeh. Um, and as you close down, that bokeh changes shape, right? So there's some where it's like, if you're wide open, you're wide open on pretty much any lens, it's always gonna be a circle. If you start to close down, the different ones have different shapes. Like there's one that kind of looks like a sunburst and a flower triangle, whatever. So this, this cinematic look is, a perfect circle, but some vintage nerds like myself like different bokeh. So the anamorphic bokeh is, is an oval. So now they have, sorry, I had to walk you through this whole thing to explain why this exists. So now they have a front element that will just, it, it basically creates an oval bokeh, an oval iris for you. So it's like faking the anamorphic bokeh, right? Does that make sense now that you understand like how bokeh is made? So, and then there's also like, you can do effects in like, uh, I think I think Resolve has an anamorphic effect where it'll give you flares on um, on like every, every sort of bright point of light that it sees in your, in your uh, shot, which we used actually, an editor really liked it on this musical that I shot last summer, um, but we had to, would have mat some of them out because it got a little aggressive with that, mm -hmm. with that effect, <laughs> you know. Well, let's let's show up some of your work um, and talk through some of those things in our sure. time we have left. Uh, up to you if you want to do photos or videos first. Let's, let's do the stills. Let's do the stills. So um, these are the. Uh, this is a musical poem that I shot. Uh, with director Kristen Hange out of New York. Uh, and these are Zeiss Super Speeds. Uh, that's Monique Coleman from High School Musical. Um, so you can see, I mean, we're, we were shooting like at dawn. So you can see like how shallow that depth of field is because I didn't have any lights. <laughs> we were on the beach. Is this changing? There we go. So you can also see like, there's not a lot of like optical aberration. It's pretty clear um, as far as like any kind of weirdness goes and, and the contrast is nice too. The other thing, I mean, just consider also is I, I always shoot on a, with a LUT on, I choose a different LUT for every project. So a LUT is, um, it's, it stands for lookup table and it essentially is like this color equals this color, right? Um, it's, it's an algorithm. So it's very similar to like putting an Instagram filter on, right? Except way more uh, in depth with uh, bits. <laughs> so, okay. So, okay, so Zeiss super speed. So here's that triangle bokeh I was talking about. You can see how uh, I was closed down. Now here we were in bright sun, right? So I was closed down to probably a four or five, six, something like that. Um, and you can see how if I had been wide open, which I was here, I don't know if you can see any of the, but you can see how like everything in the background is way softer here versus when I was closed down a little bit, you can get all of this like fun triangle stuff. And then this, we were also uh, in the middle of the night. This was actually indoors, um, also on Zeiss Super Speeds. So Zeiss Super Speeds are super great for uh, their vintage, I mean, their vintage glass, but they're very fast. 
So um, they're phenomenal for anything at night, spherical lenses. Um, but they also don't add a whole lot of what you would call like interesting vintage weirdness, funky stuff, you know? Um, but I've, I mean, I shot a feature on Zeiss Super They're They're quite affordable as well, I should say. So that that, uh, that factors in. If you want like a vintage lens that's somewhat affordable, size super speeds is probably the way for you to go. Now, this was a Subaru spec that I shot. Um, and these are on Cook anamorphic eyes. So anytime on a Cook lens, you see the eye, that means interactive. So it'll send lens data. Any, any kind of lens will have like a, some kind of uh, marker showing you whether it's a smart lens or a stupid lens. Vintage lenses are stupid lenses because computers didn't exist in, in a very public way at the time. So, but but modern lenses will send through uh, the basic information of like what f-stop you're at or t-stop in cinema. So in, in still lenses, it's f-stop. In cinema lenses, it's t-stop. I don't know why. It's the same thing, but that's, that's the difference. Um, so I shot a Saweetie music video uh, recently, and this was on the Alexa Mini, and I have a set of vintage Canon FD lenses, which are uh, about the closest thing you can get to K35s that, that you can find. I mean, K35s are like the sexiest vintage lens that exists, like you can't rent them right now. They're all rented out on shows for years right now. <laughs> so this is about as close as you can get. So you can see though, the thing everyone loves about K35s and thusly FDs are, do you see the bokeh in the background here? It's called an onion. It's called an onion bokeh. And you can see how uh, you, you get a little onion pattern. And it's the only way you can, can describe it, but the difference, there's very little difference between specific Canon FD lenses and the K35s. They use the exact same optics, they just have fewer blades in the uh, in the iris um, and the 24, the 55 and the 85 are the exact same lens just with different irises. So this is the 85, um, which of course is beautiful and I'm obsessed with. Is uh, that is that a lot of that, that photo, that photo there, is there a lot of um, post color done on that or is that no, pretty much? No. So you can see here in the slightly wider, we had these uh, Astera tubes and then in the back right here, I have an Aperture 300D with a gel on it. Um, and then we had fog to pick some stuff up. You can see here inside this window, I have just a little one by one uh, LED panel that's, RG, that's RGB, so I set it to blue, just, sort of fit, just to sort of have a little contrast there. So, and then we had a fill, a couple fill LED panels in front of her to give, to give her some nice stuff. But um, but yeah, no, there's no, I mean, I just have my LUT on it. That's it. This is the LUT I shot with. So um, on the note of LUT, Kate yeah. would like to know, how do you pick the LUT you use um, in day of, in advance? What goes into your thought process? That's an excellent question. So um, it's a whole thing. So with the Alexa, um, they have a, what's called a look library that you buy. And, and it's like on a little USB and you put it into your camera and load it up. So they there's a bunch of different looks that they have preset. I can I can make looks too, but their looks are pretty good. So 
Um, when I had the, when I owned the Ursa, the Black Magic Ursa, I would make LUTs uh, in DaVinci Resolve. So I would basically, the ideal situation is you would go and shoot some test footage, bring it back to your computer, make a LUT, put it on your camera, shoot with it on the day. There's not always that amount of time, or if you're shooting on location, it's not always possible because you like get there and I shoot a lot on location. So I, I made, um, when I had, when I shot on the Ursa, I made a bunch of LUTs that I just liked based on other films that I liked. So then I would get to set and um, either on the scout or whatever, I would roll those in to sort of see which ones I liked. And then I, I try to keep it to one or two LUTs for the length of the film, because otherwise it gets a little complicated. Um, so with the Alexa, I'll go on, they have like an app where you can, they've like taken a picture of a landscape, a car, a woman. And so you can kind of say like, okay, I know that I, we're gonna be in a forest. So I know I want the greens to be true green or slightly teal, right? So then I can look at the landscape and see in the trees, which one has like the kind of green I'm looking for. And then I'll pick like three and I'll write them down in my notes app. And then when I get to set, I'll try each of those three and pick which one of those three I like. But they have there's a lot of them, so you kind of have to do a little prep work in advance. Um, and then if there's a on really bigger shoots like features or big commercials, um, you'll go in with your colorist in advance, right? So you would go shoot test footage or whatever scout footage and stuff, and then you would take that footage to your colorist, and they would create different whatever LUTs for whatever you want, or you just make one shooting LUT. And then your DIT or your AC or whatever will load those in appropriately, like as you're moving through a shoot. So that's like the, the big budget version. Um, let's go into some of your, your video um, so that sure. uh, we can show some of the movement and how all of this stuff comes together. Sure. Uh, yeah, so these are vintage CineoVision anamorphic lenses. Uh, I think that's a Rokinon. No, sorry, those are Canons. Those are CineoVisions. These are Zeiss Super Speeds. Those are CineoVision. All the all this period film is CineoVisions. Those are Canon. I think those are Rokinons. Zeiss Super Speeds. Canon cinema lenses. Um, let's pause for a second. Sure. Um, so for those of you who are newly investing in cameras and lenses, I highly recommend Rokinons. So affordable, gorgeous, especially for the price, um, and very just practical. It's it's like because they're you know around three hundred dollars a lens, it's something you can actually get a couple of. Um, yeah, I still have a hun the hundred macro Roke, Roke, I call them Rokies, but um, they're a f they're phenomenal lenses for starting because you actually get an idea of what a cinema lens is, um, and they're they're very clean lenses. Uh, yeah, so that those this sh this little it was like a little ad for a real estate company. These these are Rokinons with a lot with a black magic. Uh, Mel would like to know um, why you 
talk about why you select a LUT instead of shooting in log. I will say I hate when DP shoot in log because I need to see the color. And I don't know if that's a big reason that you do it, Sarah, just for your clients, your directors. Yeah. Okay. So I'll tell you. So I used to shoot. I used to mod, I'll, well, now let's clarify. So I shoot, I do shoot in log. Um, like the footage is in log uh, that's being recorded. But I put a LUT on the monitor, um, partially for the director and producer. As a DP personally, I, the, when you meet DPs that have been doing it for a while, the, we kind of have PTSD about things that have happened to us. So I will put that LUT on so that people get used to the color that I prefer. Like it. <laughs> so that when they get into the edit, they do that instead of something that is less good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's the but reason. On that note, you need to color correct your stuff. <laughs> like I know a lot of filmmakers, even like I've, I've directed films where the producers did not care about the product. They just wanted the money and they literally did not let us color correct films and it's painful. Yeah. Yeah. There's an amazing colorist. Uh, her name's Persephone. She's at Neptune post. She's very affordable and an amazing human. Um, anyway. So yeah. So I will put a lot on for that reason. Also because a lot, um, if you shoot in log, you're shooting the most basic, boring, we exposed it right version, right? With a LUT, you can, if you make an intelligent choice about that LUT with the story, um, then you can back yourself into that look on the day, right? As opposed to having to do it in color. So if you, for example, have like a very shadowy scene and you have your LUT on and you know how dark it's going to push those shadows, then you can walk yourself right up to that line of what you want the shadows to look like. Do you want any kind of movement in there? Do you want any kind of, you know, exposure? You can still, you, I still toggle between, you know, I, I have my little exposure tools and I'll toggle between log and with the LUT on and all that stuff to make sure it's like still technically exposed correctly, but you can push yourself in the direction that you want it to end up as right. Um, Plus then the colorist in the metadata has the LUT that you shot with, right? And also the editor can just toggle that on. So whenever your people, again, to like get people used to the, the look that you think is the best look, <laughs> people get used to that look during when they're getting dailies, they're not getting dailies in log, right? So you can always like fiddle with it later, but it gets to the point where like you can make it look awesome from the beginning. Jackie says, Sarah, your stuff is beautiful. If you're still non-union, she's going to be calling you. I am still non-union. That's a whole nother conversation about <laughs> <laughs> Non-union, but very busy. Maybe by um, the end of the year, I'll be 600. Depends on how they feel about uh, a lot of the, it, day, their days count based on if your things are distributed or not yet. And my things, I shoot a lot of indie. It takes longer to get distributed. That's all I'll say about that. Continuing on. <laughs> I'll add and say that's dumb. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, Mel, we actually had an issue with 
what we shot when we shot my USC thesis film. I wanted our final to be much more shadowy and tonal, but we had to do a lot in post with color to make that happen. I'm learning so much here. Thank you. Oh, I love that, Mel. That's great. Um, so I really have maybe about five minutes left. Uh, so I would love to go through some a little more of your work and your videos just so people can see it and maybe talk about anything that comes to mind as far as like why you maybe you chose a camera or if there's an interesting lighting situation mm -hmm. you want to talk about. So, uh, well, let me, can I just show a still really quick? Yeah, of course. So let me show you, I just shot this, I don't know, like three weeks ago. So this is a, it's a short film. It's like an action short. Um, and they wanted, they didn't really care what we shot on, but I knew we had a lot of like sort of night stuff. Right. And I wanted fast lenses. And I love personally cook lenses, pretty much any kind of cook lens. You can't go wrong. So um, now there's different applications for each thing. But I can show you. Uh, so these are the Cook S5Is. Um, and they are the fastest of the modern Cook S series, right? There's like Cook S7s and Cook S4s and Cook S4 minis and all this stuff. But these are the fastest ones. Most of the other ones, Cook tends to run closer to the 2.3 range. These were closer to like a 1.5. So you can kind of see this fun flare, right? And Cook to me tends to go, so the, I, I just love shooting on Cook. So if people are like, I don't know what to shoot on, I'll probably just be like, we should shoot on something Cook. Um, unless, you know, we're being hemmed in by certain parameters of the shoot. So you can see though this fun, super fun, like cool. flare coming in. So it's this, this is literally just off of this practical on the motorcycle. So you can see how it like changes and blooms. Um, I wish I had the full clip, but it's they literally just shot it three weeks ago. Um, but you can see also how this is coming in off of the, the street lamp over here. I mean, these are fast lenses. So we were able to open up to have enough exposure um, with minimal, minimal lighting. I think we had like a couple of Astera tubes and a couple of panels. So it wasn't a ton of stuff. Um, but we were never all the way wide open at one four, we mostly lived it like a two. Uh, so that's the Alexa Mini with Cook S5 eyes. And now let's look at some Lomos. Um, so this, these are vintage Lomos. Lomos are a Russian lens. Um, these are the spherical Lomos, they also have anamorphic. So if they say there's like spherical Lomos and anamorphic Lomos, basically the taking lens is the Lomo and then the anamorphic element would be something else, right? Because all sorts of people made anamorphic elements. But you can see the bloom here on the Lomos on the right there from also a practical bare bulb. So you're always gonna get that off of a bare bulb. But you can also see here, we were wide open here. Now look at that bokeh. Oh no, see, we're not all the way wide open here on the Lomos. Now look at that bokeh in the back. So we had to be ever so slightly closed down and that's, uh, I think they call it like a flower bokeh because it looks like petals. Isn't that kind of cool? Right. Uh, and then here we are wide open on the same lenses with the Lomos. So you can see how it, that bokeh changes. Um, now on a shot like this, um, mm -hmm. what do you, like, because I look at it, I go, wow, is, am I going to think, is that going to be too dark? Because the background is gorgeous and I can see a little bit of, what I'm trying to see, how do you know where you can push the limits? Uh, you you toggle your exposure tool on and off. Um, I push the limits, 
sometimes. Uh, there's me. I, I will say uh, the DaVinci Resolve uh, denoising tool has saved me a couple of times because in post you can get, you can bump it up a little bit. And then if you put the denoiser on, that'll save you a little bit uh, if you if you accidentally went a little too dark. But, um, but I generally expose off of log, right? So I'll throw the LUT on, but I check my exposure on log to make sure that we still have all of the data and we're not losing anything on the dark end, basically. Unless you wanna lose stuff. Sometimes you have to sacrifice if you're like very, if you have a wide gamut of exposure. Sometimes you're like, are we exposing for the highlights or the shadows? Because you're gonna lose one of them. Um, so those are Lomas. Lomas are super fun to shoot with. These are vintage cooked pancros. Uh, this is that musical that I shot. Um, and and cooked pancros are 2.3, right? So they're not super fast, but we we had some bunch of bright lights back there. Um, also pancros, pancros. You saw the you saw the Canon FDs. Uh, so this is a thing sometimes you can do. This is I shot this for a show that's not out yet that I'm not technically allowed to talk about. Um, so this is, it's a fashion video and, uh, those were on cook anamorphics as well, but you can see here, this is with nothing in front of the lens, but he wanted to play, the director wanted to play with, um, something called daguerreotype, which is an old metal print from the 1800s. So I wanted to put stuff in front of the lens. So I now have a grab bag of random glass pieces that you can just sort of shove in front of the lens, right? So that's one of them. And then you can also see here, I mean, that's literally just like a filament bulb that I put in front of the lens, you know? But you can get some really, there's also companies that make things that you could put in front of the lens, but you, any, anything that's made out of glass, you can just put in front of the lens and it looks kind of cool. Um, we have to wrap up. Yeah. So I will say to wrap, let's maybe say, um, what is maybe your best advice for newer filmmakers who, you know, they've got their camera now, they've got their lens, um, when they're going, when they're thinking about doing their one person, two person crew shoots, mm. shoots that you and I hope we never have to do again, uh, <laughs> the shoots you always have to do when you're starting out. What is some, what is sort of your thoughts on like the things they should consider, um, making sure they have in their kit, quote unquote, um, mm. to get by? Uh, well, you'll never go wrong if you have ND filters because <laughs> ND is it's called neutral density filters. And if you're in bright sun, you have to, if you want to keep your T-stop down, you're going to need that because it'll, it decreases the amount of light that comes in without affecting your image if you get a decent ND filter. So that allows you to keep your T-stop at like a 2.8 as opposed to having to go up to an 11 or 16 and then everything's in focus in your whole thing and you may as well shoot on your iPhone. Um, I would say the biggest thing truly like at the end of the day was like the things that I learned and have seen people affected by with the quality is time and preparation. Those are the two things that go, go out the wayside because one person is doing 57 jobs. So which you have to do. I mean, Jen, you know, I know you got to do it because you, the only way to learn is to shoot, 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 shoot. And then you're like, ah, it didn't work out so good. Can I save that? Do 
Do I have to reshoot that? You we know, all have <laughs> stuff. I was going through my, my all of my projects recently because I wanted to put them all on one drive instead of like the six they were on. Yeah. And I remember thinking something I shot at one point that it was so good. Like, oh, my God. It's so, and I'm looking at it. I'm like, this is complete crap. I can't believe I ever yeah. let this be out in the world. But that's so you the really do of have artists. to keep show, shoot, shoot, shoot. Absolutely. You just have to keep shooting, shooting. And then you watch your shit. And then you, it gets into a film festival. And you see what block it's in. And then you see all the other stuff that <laughs> got programmed with it. And you're like, wow, <laughs> I got a ways to go here. What's going on? Like, and you, But you have to be, you know, fix yourself. But the two things, prep and, and time. Like, don't try to fit 13 pages into one day. Shoot something that or write something that you can shoot over a week because you have the location for free or something. Like the difference will be made in your performance and the time. Like if you just, what they call spray and pray and hope that you get a good story, it's not gonna be better than all the other people you're competing with at a film festival. You have to plan your shots and come up with something interesting. And the only way to do that is with time and preparation. And, and that's a whole nother prep is a whole nother series we need to have. We can have a week on it. Um, Sarah, thank you so much. This has been an incredible wealth of knowledge. Um, I'm sure that people are going to be rewinding and watching to, to, to absorb it all. Um, so thank you for joining us. And we hope, I hope you'll come and do some more of these little tech talks of yours. Of course. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.